Well, my text uh, for this evening is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Let me just read it to you once again. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I don't know if you've ever uh, seen uh, the Milky Way. I know some of you are uh, born and bred in London, and it's not really easy to see the stars, but I'm, I'm almost positive that most of us have had that experience of looking into the, into the firmament, into the starry night sky, and, and being just in awe of its grandeur and of its beauty. When you look at a, at a constellation, when you look at the, the starry sky, there is always one star that seems to bright, uh, shine more uh, brighter. And so it is with this, with this beatitude. Out of the, the firmament of the constellation of all the beatitudes, the one that we approach this evening is the most bright shining star in that sky. In a, in a, in a couple of days, there will be a coronation uh, service, event, and on that coronation, there is a crown that is placed on the, on the head of the king. And on that crown, there is a, a precious centerpiece jewel, the most expensive one, uh, gem in the world, I, I think I read, it's called the Cullinan First. It is nonetheless just a part of the whole, but that jewel is the, the centerpiece. It is the, 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 the attention grabber. And so it is with this verse. In the crown jewel or in the, in the, in the crown of, of, the, of blessedness, of what it means to be blessed, to see God is the calling and first is the, the, the special centerpiece jewel of blessedness. Out of all the rewards that we are told in these 12 verses, out of all conceivable delights that mankind can conceive of, to see God is the greatest of rewards. There was never a promise in the history of this world that was made as grand and as glorious as the promise of seeing God. I say this with no reservations, and I'm not saying this because preachers tend to overemphasize uh, what they're preaching on as being the most important. I truly believe that there is no promise as great, or there is no promise greater than this one. Because this promise addresses, this beatitude addresses the essence of what it means to be a Christian. The essence of the Christian life. The ultimate goal of life. What we were created for is to be in fellowship with God, to see God. Seeing God is the ultimate aim of every enterprise. The very purpose of religion, true religion I might say, but even false religion, the point is to try and, and work your way to seeing God or to being God or whatever the false religions say. But it is in these words 
that we find the greatest, most hopeful, most radiant promise, or at least among the most hopeful and more radiant promises that ever came out of our Lord's lips. I say this reverently. Everything that the Lord, our Lord Jesus said was, was uh, glorious. But in, in terms of the content of hope, in terms of, of the, the joy that is promised in the words that he says, this is among the greatest So for me, it's, it's a, a daunting task to approach a text like this. Because no matter how hard I strive, I will fail miserably at convincing you that this is the most glorious promise ever made. The promise of possessing something that is seemingly impossible to have. Think about it. It is the promise of having something that would otherwise cause us to shudder and to tremble. Just the thought of seeing God, if you understand what it means to see God, should cause us all to tremble and to recoil and to, and to, and to hunch down because we don't want to be in the presence of God. And if you don't understand what I say, you, you haven't understood what it means to be in the presence of holy, righteous God. But what Jesus is saying here is that seeing God is not only... Uh, 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 a cause for, for, for fear. It's not, just, it's not a, a cause for fear. It is actually the, the, the source of purest joy to those who receive this promise. Really, this beatitude is the centerpiece. It's the pinnacle. So you might ask, what does it mean to be blessed to be blessed? Uh, as a pure in heart, what does it mean to see God? And that's what we will address this evening. A good place to start as we think about uh, purity of heart, as we think about the vision of God, as we think of this beatitude, is actually where we begin all the other beatitudes. The beatitudes, and the Sermon on the Mount for that matter, is countercultural. It's meant to look culture, look mankind straight in the face and say, this is what you believe. This is the lie you believe. This is what is true. The point of the, uh, of the, Beatitude, uh, of the Beatitudes and of the Sermon on the Mount is to express something that, is, that runs contrary to human nature. So in order to ascertain and to know the meaning of this Beatitude, a good place to start, not perhaps the only place to start, but a good place to start is to ask ourselves where being pure in heart challenges the prevailing ideas of the day regarding the heart of man. The world, throughout history, but especially in the last 100, 200 years, the world has more and more developed this attitude. This was never more true than it is in our own day, that everyone is basically good. Everyone in their heart of hearts is pure. 
It's really the circumstances that make someone do bad things. It's the environment, the nature, the place where they were put, the, 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 the events on how, in how they were raised that make people bad. Because in their heart of hearts, everyone is pure and good. Everyone is actually a good person. It is things outside that defile the heart. The world denies that there is inherent evil in man. Philosophers like uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau uh, said, uh, and, uh, and John Locke said things like this. There is no really evil in man. But where does evil really come from? Scripture is clear. Evil comes from the inside of man. We were conceived in sin. And in sin we, we live. Our hearts are sinful. And they beat, beat to, the, to, the, to the sound and the rhythm of, of sin. They throb at the sight of sin. Sigmund Freud, you know the name, the, the father called the father of psychoanalysis. Uh, uh, he said that our problems, the problems of mankind are allogenous. It's a technical term. It means that it, they are generated, genus, allo, outside. The problems of man are allogenous, outside of man. The problems, uh, evil comes from the outside. It is generated outside of us. That's what Sigmund Freud said. Our Lord Jesus, the creator of man, says that our problems are autogenous. Not allogenous, outside the, uh, generated outside, but uh, autogenous, generated by us, within our heart. For our heart, for out of the heart, Jesus says, proceed evil thoughts. Murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. The Bible says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring issues of life. The word is categorical. The Bible, the word of God is categorical. There is no uh, evil that does not spring up from the heart of man. It is a terrible fallacy of our day. These are not my words. These are the words of, of Dr. Lloyd-Jones uh, in expounding this text. I was reading just before the service, and I think he, he, he says it with, with, with such a punch. It is terrible, he says. It's a tragic fallacy of the last hundred years. Has been, the tragic fallacy of the last hundred years has been to think that all man's troubles are due to his environment. And that to change the man, you have nothing to do but to change his environment. That is a tragic fallacy. It overlooks the fact that it was in paradise. That it was in paradise that man fell. He was in a perfect environment that he first went wrong. So to put man in a perfect environment cannot solve his problems. No. No. It is out of the heart that these things arise. Take any problem in life. Anything that leads to wretchedness, find out its cause and you will always discover that it comes from the heart somewhere. From some unworthy desire in somebody, in an individual, in a group or in a nation 
All our troubles arise out of it, this human heart, which we are told by Jeremiah is deceitful above all things and desperately, desperately wicked. So you see, this is where the counterculture part begins. The world is not pure in heart. To become a citizen of the kingdom, to be one of these blessed individuals that are citizens of the kingdom of God, because this is what the point of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, to expound what it means to be a part of this, the kingdom of God. To be a citizen of the kingdom of God, it needs to, uh, to be an, an action of a change of nature needs to take place. A sinful heart needs to be transformed. You know, a heart, let me just say this, because again, in our culture, heart means something completely different than in, the, in Scripture. Heart, uh, in our culture, is just the, the seat of the emotions. It's just where we feel something. Oh, I felt in my heart of hearts. In Scripture, when, heart, when we speak about heart, it's not just the emotions, it's the emotions, it's the will, it's the intellect. Everything is the heart. Everything that, that, that pervades to human experience begins in the heart. The mind, the emotion, the will. It refers to man at its core, in its totality. And Jesus is saying, unless purity penetrates every corridor, every, uh, every uh, cupboard of your house, of your body, unless purity is a part of your being from beginning to end, you will not seek God. Unless your emotions, your thoughts, your motivations, your desires, your will is pure, you will not see God. Unless you are one willed, motivated by one thing, you will not see God. What does it mean to be pure? Having expounded, said what heart means, let's think about the word pure. The word pure... It, in its original form, in its linguistic sense, uh, in Greek, is the word for undefiled, for unmixed, for, for unadulterated. It was used to denote dirty laundry. If you had a, 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 vest, a, a vest, if you had a, a piece of clothing, you would say that the, the clothing was impure because it needed to be washed. There was, there was impurities in it. There's something in the, in the clothing that doesn't belong there. It was used to denote wheat that had been separated from, it, from the chaff. So when you, when you do the, 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 the crops, when you, 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 you gather in, you have wheat and chaff, it's impure. When you separate them, you say that the wheat is now pure. It's, it's no, there's no longer anything mixed with it. That's in the, it's common sense. It's with gold and dross. You say that gold is pure after the dross has been remo removed. But in biblical terms... To be pure means to be devoted, uh, devoid of hypocrisy. It means to be undivided in devotion. That's why the psalmist says, Unite my heart to fear only your name. And that's the greatest difficulty, isn't it? Because our minds tend to want everything and anything. We, we're du we have a duplicity in our hearts. We, we seem to pull one way and want to go the other. And even as, as, I'm speaking as Christian, as a Christian. Why is the Apostle Paul is able to cry out in, 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 
and, and loathe himself. Oh, wretched man that I am. With, because of the, the inner battle that he has going on. He's divided. He seems like his flesh wants to go one way. The spirit wants to go the other. And the things he wants to do, he doesn't do. And the things he doesn't do, he, those he does. A clean heart, a pure heart, in Jesus' sense, what Jesus is saying, a pure heart is a heart that is undivided in its attention. It is a heart that is free from contamination, a heart that desires one thing and one thing only. Soren Kierkegaard, a Christian, he wrote a book that said, uh, called The Purity of the Heart is to Will One Thing. And it's not a bad definition, don't get me wrong, it's a great definition. But purity of heart is to, if he, if he would allow me to change his definition, his title, purity of heart is to will one thing only, provided that, the, that one thing is the glory of God. To have a single heart, to have a single mind. Look at the words of James as we define this term. Draw near to God, James says. James uh, chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, purity, purifying language, uh, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. What is he saying there? You're double-minded, you need to purify your heart. Or the words of our Lord Jesus. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He doesn't say you shall love the Lord your God with just a part of your heart, 80% of your heart, 90%. No, that's being double-minded. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Anything less is impurity in your heart. Anything else is hypocrisy in your heart. It's a divided allegiance in your heart. So purity of heart is to will one thing, to will it to the utmost, perfectly. So why do we need purity of heart? Before we address the big elephant in the room of... None of us is pure. Why do we need purity of heart? Before we get to that question. Without perfect purity of heart, the psalmist says, no one can stand before God. The Bible tells us that God has eyes too pure to look at evil. Only the pure in heart are admitted into his presence. So what it really means for us, what it really means for us is that whenever life comes our way, brothers and sisters, whenever life comes our way, whenever the world forces us to conform to something, that to have a pure heart is to say, no, I will conform to the will of God before I conform to the will of the world. I will, I will follow what God says. That's purity of heart. It's not loving the world and loving God. You cannot do both. You cannot serve God and mammon. 
You cannot love God and love the world. You cannot be friends with God and friends with the world. You cannot be able to stand in the presence of God and be comfortable with that, with that and be able to be comfortable with the world. You're either with God or you're against God. That's the purity of heart issue here. You cannot have it both ways. In the kingdom of God, you cannot be at ease and comfortable with the world and at ease and comfortable with God. Either you are pure in heart and you're uncompromising with, the, with this world uh, with regards to the will of God and the world will hate you and the world will push back at you or you compromise and then you cannot say you're pure in heart and then you just cave in a little and, you can, and then you cannot say that you're pure in heart. Now, by definition, we as Christians, we should be those who's, uh, to whom God's favor is our most highest, is our highest aim, our, our most precious goal. To be in God's, uh, to earn, not to earn, but to, to, to please God with our lives should be our highest achievable goal. Our hearts should be set not in receiving the approval of others, not in receiving the approval of ourselves, whatever that means nowadays, <laughs> be at peace with yourself and all of that, not to receive the approval of the world, but to receive the approval of God. Wouldn't you love, brother and sister, to have said of you by the, by the Lord himself what he said of Job, have you seen my servant? It is possible. And, servant, and Job, mind you, he was just a sinner like we are. Redeemed, trusting the Lord by faith, but God was pleased with him. Isn't that what you would want? Isn't that what moves your heart? If it isn't, it's because you haven't understood something of the, the glory of this passage. Something of the magnitude of God's person, his majesty, and his, and his glory. Don't you want to be in the presence of God? An old Puritan, he was, his name was Richard Rogers. He, he was visiting a manor. It was, I think, in, his, in, the, uh, in the place where he lived. And he, his um, landlord, his, the, or the local lord in, uh, in the manor where he was, um, not land. Well, that's where landlord comes from. The local lord of the manor where he was was railing at him, trying to get him to not be so strict, trying to get him to compromise a little bit, to not be so pure in heart. To use to the, uh, today's uh, uh, today's term, and he railed and railed against him to to not be so precise. I think eventually the the Lord said, "Don't be so precise." In your observation of biblical standards, he said, to which, to which Richard Rogers responded, Oh, sir, I serve a precise God. Don't be so precise. Compromise just a little bit. Let just a little bit of the fireman come in. That's what the world tells us. And what, does the, what is the reply of Richard Rogers here? Well, I serve a precise God. For us, in our case this evening, is 
Oh, don't be so holy. Don't be so puritanical. Don't be so, so prude. And you say, I serve a holy, righteous, undefiled, perfect God. He values holiness. His holiness and our holiness. So too I will value it. But let's address the big elephant in the room. Some of you are, uh, if not quoting at, at me directly, you're probably thinking, but who can say that? You, can you say that? That you're pure in heart? You're probably thinking, well, are you, can you say that, pastor? Can you say that, preacher? Can you say that, that you're pure in heart? Proverbs 20, verse 9, asks this very same question. Who can say? Proverbs 20, verse 9, reads, I have kept my heart pure. I am clean and without sin. The answer is, of course, no one. None of us can say that. We cannot say that our hearts are pure. We cannot say that our hearts are perfect. We cannot say that we are clean and without sin. Do you recognize that at least? I cannot say it, and I'm sure you cannot say it as well. If I were to pluck the thoughts of your mind at this moment, and we don't have a projector, but if we had a projector and project them in the back of this hall for everyone to see, you would be running away from this place. You would be running away from this place. No, people don't need to see the things that come into my heart or the things that come out of my heart that I have to suppress because I, I've been taught and educated. Because left to our own devices, our hearts would do the most egregious things that would make the worst of, of, of the Nazis and the worst of, of the of genocidal, maniac, lunatic dictators to to recoil back at the thoughts that sometimes come into our hearts. It's just because we don't do them doesn't mean that our hearts are not desperately wicked. They are. So who can say it? Where do we find this purity if none of us have it? Is this just a, a cruel joke that, that, that our Lord Jesus said? Is this just cruelty to say, well, none of you are coming to heaven? It is impossible. In fact, this question was asked of our Lord Jesus. Not, a, not in this case, but when he said something very similar, the disciples turned to him, who then can be saved? You remember what, what Jesus said? Well, for man it is impossible, but for God it, anything and everything is possible. It is impossible for man, but God is able to do the impossible. You see, the answer that the Bible gives us to the problem of the purity of heart is the answer of, to the problem of sin. How is it that sin is addressed? Let me step back. How is it that you address something when in your life in your day-to-day -day life, how is it that you address something that you cannot do? Let's say in your home, there's a leak under the sink and your, your plumbing skills are, are literally zero. How do you address that? 
plumbing or computer problem, or whatever it is that you have and you don't know how to deal with it. It is impossible for you to fix it. How do you fix it? You go and call someone who knows how to do it. Simple, right? You go call someone who will do it for you. That's normal. That's natural for us. If you try to do it, you'll make a mess. Just get someone who knows what they're doing and they'll come and fix it. In the Old Testament, we find something similar. In the Old Testament, people's hearts were impure. What was the, the solution provided by God in the days of, of the people of Israel? Well, you're going to have a high priest. He's going to be your substitute. He's going to be your representative. He's going to stand in, and bridge that gap for you. That high priest had to remain pure. He never could. Although he tried, more towards the end of the, uh, in the rabbinical era, it, it, it got so ridiculous, the, the extent to which man can try to, get, uh, to keep his heart pure, it got to a point that in the night before the, the, the Yom Kippur, the Day of the Atonement, the high priest would not sleep. Why? Because he was so afraid that he would dream a bad dream. They would have some kind of sensual dream in the middle of the night and he would defile his heart and therefore he couldn't perform the duties. So he would remain sleepless uh, for, the rest, uh, for the evening before the, the Day of Atonement. And there were all other kinds of rules and regulations of man trying to keep the, his heart pure. And they never could. But all of this was not to be the solution, the be-all and end-all of, of the problem of lack of purity in man's heart. The, the high priest was meant to point us forward to the fulfillment of those types and shadows. And that's what we have described in Jesus Christ. The great high priest, the book of Hebrews says, one who was holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Jesus is the perfect substitute. He is the one that comes in and does what we could not do. His purity was full and complete on the outside, which is somewhat easy for, for mankind to, 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 to fake it. But he was pure on the inside. No defilement came in. He lived a perfect life. He died an atoning death. And that's the gospel. So that now those who lack purity of heart can come to him and be robed in his righteousness and, and receive of his purity. By his death, he, he came to sanctify for himself a people but just like we saw a couple of weeks ago, no more than a couple of weeks ago, a couple of Beatitudes ago, uh, in, the, in the Beatitude of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, not only in, in uh, God, let me say it like this, not only God provides for us, he also provides in us. What do I mean? In, in the righteousness beatitude, what I, what I tried to put across was that God provided for us a, a, act, a righteousness, a, a perfect obedience that was outside of us, but at the same time, he created, creates in us this hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And the same is true with the purity of heart. Not only he provides for us a pure, atoning, 
substitute, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this perfect and spotless Lamb. Uh, but he also creates in us a new heart, a pure, refined heart, as well as giving us the, the substitute. He also works in us this desire for purity. That is why in Psalm 51, David is able to pray, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Why? For, for, for David, these were not just idle words coming out of his mouth. When he said these words, he was going through the, the deepest conviction of sin. He had just murdered a man and, and took his wife, Bathsheba. He had just done the, some of the, the most egregious acts that every man can do. Murder. And he's crying out to God, God, create in me a pure heart. That's how we attain a pure heart. By the, transform, by the application of Christ's purity, but by the transformation of our heart. And how is our heart transformed? How can we attain? How can we gain a purer heart, brothers and sisters? Well, follow David's. Follow David's example. Pray for it. But not just pray. Work on it. Psalm 119 verse 9. How can the young man keep his way pure? The answer? By living according to your word. The way to a pure heart passes through devotion to God, praying and, and reading his word, not just with an intellectual desire to learn something. Oh, there are many who read their Bibles and their hearts are just as defiled as they first were. And in fact, the more they read, the more they defile themselves. No. Read, your word, read the word as one who is searching to find what God expects from you. He has showed you, O man, Micah says, what is good and what the Lord does the Lord require of you. Just knowledge is not enough. You need to have a desire to go with that knowledge. Or you need to have a desire before you get to that knowledge. Because knowing your Bible better, knowing your Bible more, might just increase the gap that exists between, between your knowledge and your performance. You can no longer plead ignorance, just like you can no longer plead ignorance this evening. In Scripture, I would argue, we actually see God. And that's my, my final point, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to be brief in, in, in addressing this. What is the reward? Having detailed and spoken a little bit about purity of heart, what is the reward? What is the blessedness of, of being pure in heart? Jesus says, they will or they shall see God. So much has been written, so many... Uh, Countless volumes and tomes of, of literature has been written on this very issue. Some of the great fathers of the church 
so that you don't say that I'm always quoting from, from the Puritans. Some of the great fathers of the church spent countless years, decades of their lives, devoted to this single, uh, this single point, the beatific vision, they called it, the vision of God, the blessed vision. And the great question is, what does it mean to see God? And I'll do something that I usually don't do, but I'll say, I, I really don't know what it means to see God fully, comprehensively. Is it to see God objectively, visibly? I would say like Moses saw God or God's back in the cleft of the rock. I think so. But is it more than that? Is it just, is it just to, to see with the eyes of the flesh? No, it must be more than that. There are statements in Scripture that say that, 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 that God is spiritual. It seems to me that ultimately this question is, can only be answered when you get to the point where it's given to you. Moses only saw God, uh, saw God, the theophanies of the Old Testament. But then Jesus says, doesn't he? That you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape. That no man has seen God at any time. I think ultimately, the reason why we find ourselves in this paradox of what it means to see God is that our minds are inadequate, that our intellects are finite, that our understanding is small, and that any attempt to describe something of this will always fail. All we know is that we will see God. It is that this promise is in one way or in some way fulfilled I think the verb here is quite interesting, the verb tense. It says, they shall see God. It's translated as they shall see God, but in the Greek, it's a future continuous. It's, it's more of a continuous action. Yes, it might refer just to eternity, but my argument, and I think I'm not alone in saying this, uh, I'm in good company. My argument is that not only will you see God in the future, in glory, in heaven, and you already see God when you're pure in heart in this life. Not fully, but already. You see him in his worth. If you're, if you're someone with a regenerated heart, you see him in everything. You see, them, you see him in nature. The world does not see God in nature. You see him, you see him in the life events of your day-to-day -day life, in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the good parts of your life and in the bad parts. When you're healthy, you see him. When you're sick, you see him. In everything in life, you start seeing God's control and God's presence in all. Everything. And yes, now we see like through a mirror dimly. But one day we shall see without this, this veil, 
We shall behold face to face, whatever that means. And I'm not the only one that, that doesn't really, cannot really grasp. I, I don't think any of us can grasp. And if you think seeing God face to face is just, you're going to be in some place in, uh, uh, in heaven and your eyes will, physical flesh will see God. If you think that's all it is, you haven't understood what it means to see God. You haven't grasped the beginning of it. I haven't understood it, but it's much more than that. Job said, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he, he shall stand at last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed. This I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. All my heart yearns within me. To see God is so much more. It's the life, it's the ultimate goal of the Christian life, to understand it. Oh, for, for the Lord to put this in our hearts, brothers and sisters. For the Lord to put something of the glory of seeing him in our hearts. It would be so much more. So, for the Lord to grow us in our desire to see him perfectly, face to face. It would make our life of obedience so much easier. Why is it that we struggle with obedience why is it that sometimes we have to coerce ourselves and threat ourselves with, with wrath uh, to obey? Because we haven't understood the love of God in Christ Jesus. Because the more we understand the love of God in Christ Jesus, the easier it is. The more we understand the being in the presence of God, seeing God is uh, the ultimate goal of the Christian life. It is the, the glory of the believer. The, more, the easier it would be for us to obey But we know that when we shall, he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. John says, when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him like he is. If we but grasped this sentiment, if we but understood this, this promise, it would revolutionize our lives. It revolutionizes our lives. Do you realize that one day you will stand before the presence of God? All of us actually will, whether Christians or non-Christians, whether believers or unbelievers. And for both of those groups, it should terrify one, or to one of them, it should terrify you. To the other, it should propel you to worship and to, glory, and to praise his name. The blessedness in this passage is inconceivable. It's beyond what our minds can grasp. It is better than all the treasures of this world combined. It's more glorious than all the accolades of this world put together. It is the greatest reward that God can ever give a man to see him, whatever that means. He's better than all your gifts, someone said. He is our inheritance, our reward. We shall have God, we shall see God for all eternity. Oh, what a glory that will be. 
That's what David meant. In Psalm 17, 1, he said, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. Whatever, however you want to define seeing your face in righteousness, I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Or as the hymn that we are about to sing, 17, version 1 says, When clothed in righteousness at last, hymn 17, version 1, Thy glorious face I see. When all this weary night is past, and I awake with thee to view the glories that abide, then how I shall.